This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Before we start to get today, I want to thank the people who have, been, have contributed to help keep us on the air. We are not a nonprofit, but we do uh, accept contributions to keep us going. We want to keep it free and available to people. Uh, you can find out information on how you can help us at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, very fortunate today to have as a guest, Jeffrey uh, Kripal. He is the Associate Dean of Faculty and Graduate Programs in the School of Humanities uh, at, uh, and Philosophy in Religion Thought at Rice University. He's also Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Echelon Institute in Big Sur, California. His new book, The Flip, Who You Really Are and Why It Matters, uh, that is now available. And uh, we'll be talking about that as well as many other things. Uh, thank you so very much, Jeff, for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you, Dennis. I'm happy to be here. Jeffrey, um, why don't you let us uh, let our listeners uh, know a little bit about you personally, how you uh, came to the study of religion, uh, what your own spiritual uh, background was, if you can briefly sort of give us a little biographical sketch. Sure, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so nobody grows up wanting to be a professor of religion. Right? <laughs> that, that would be one weird kid. I, you know, I grew up with all the traditional cultural assumptions. I wanted to be an NFL quarterback or a doctor or something. I became extremely pious as a teenager and eventually wanted to be a monk. And I uh, went to a monastic seminary college, Benedictine. Um, for my college, um, and then eventually landed at the University of Chicago in a graduate program <clears throat> of comparative religion. And there I got very much turned on by Hindu and Buddhist philosophies and practices and uh, worked in the area of Hindu Tantra for about 10, 15 years, and then migrated into Asian religions in America, mostly in California, by the way. And uh, I now work on people's extreme religious experiences that often are quite traumatic and they have trouble reintegrating into their lives. Things like near-death experiences and kundalini awakenings and precognitive and other paranormal phenomena that can be quite, quite terrifying, actually. And uh, I'm really interested in those both intellectually, but also, frankly, spiritually and existentially. And uh, that's what I do today. Interesting. I, I wanted to follow along those lines. And, and uh, before we uh, get specifically into your book, you mentioned the paranormal and experiences, spiritual experiences people have that they don't understand that can be very confusing. Um, I, I, like many people, I've had uh, a taste of that in, in my life. And I'm wondering, um, it's a big question, but how much of that relates to brain chemistry and what's going on in the brain and how much of human consciousness is not related to the brain exists separately or does it exist separately from the brain and um what your thought obviously it's something you've probably given more thought to and looked at it more, more and through other people as well uh than most uh your, your thoughts on that well that's what the flip is about dennis the whole book's about that question and what's happening in the academy and the sciences and the philosophy of mind around that uh, is actually quite interesting. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that now, but that is the flip. That's precisely what the little book is all about. And tell us, tell us, yeah. 
Well, in a nutshell, the, the kind of secular standard neuroscientific model is what we call the production thesis. And that's that the brain uh, produces consciousness full stop and consciousness is nothing but uh, the material processes of the physical brain. Uh, and so when you die, um, you end. Consciousness goes out like a light bulb, switch, switching it off. That is not the model of most of human history and it's certainly not the model of the religions which, which operate more with what we might call a filter or a, a reduction thesis. And that's the idea that the human body and brain are essentially extremely uh, sophisticated and evolved filters or transmitters or translators of some greater form of consciousness that they reduce down into a person, into Dennis or Phil or Jeff or someone. Um, but in fact, that's not who we really are, and and or that's who we are, but we're also this larger kind of cosmically distributed form of consciousness that, that in fact, is not affected at all when uh, the cell phone of the body and the brain quits working. So, Jeff, what you describe um, sounds like, in a sense, classic Vedanta and uh, the other Eastern thought. Um, it's been uh, speculated about and, and written about and spoken about even in America the last 50 years especially. Um, how is it in the academy? Is it considered a legitimate area of inquiry? Is it, uh, are you sort of relegated to some weird corner of religious studies, you know, how do, how do your scientific colleagues or your, you know, because you're overlapping in an area of, of neuroscience and that sort of thing. What, what is the sense of uh, this kind of line of inquiry, which is, you know, the big problem <laughs> in, in uh, intellectual thought for, for centuries? How, how is it, how are you received? Um. Well, fairly well, um, but not always positively, of course. I mean, so I see my main vocation or, or calling in life to work in the academy and to work with other intellectuals, particularly scientists and engineers and medical doctors, by the way, who are all trained in a kind of radically materialist, physicalist paradigm, but are human beings too, of course and have these sorts of experiences and encounter these experiences in their medical practice or in their families and don't frankly know what to do with them because they can't be fit into their training. And so a lot of my work is philosophical in the sense, I'm simply trying to show them that their conclusions are really a function of their exclusions. Their, their worldview is really simply a product of what they won't look at. Um, and that a broader form of empiricism, um, which takes these experiences in, will result in a very different worldview. And, and I don't know what that worldview is, by the way, Phil. I don't think anybody knows. Um, I think the Indian um, non-dual or Buddhist non-dual traditions are extremely sophisticated and powerful examples of how those cultures and civilizations resolve this question. But I doubt... I doubt that's exactly where we're going. I mean, I think we can engage that and should engage that, but I think we're gonna have our own models because we have our own, our own forms of knowledge that actually didn't exist before. You know, things like neuroscience and 
quantum <laughs> physics and modern cosmology, which have really, I think, fundamentally changed how intellectuals think of the world and themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jeff, I, I, if, if someone comes to you in, uh, <clears throat> from a purely scientific background, but is open to what you're discussing, and they say, let's look at that, who's most likely to be able to look at these experiences, a neuroscientist, or could it be from other areas? Well, in, so in my own very, very um, small or, or personal experience, it's mostly physicists and a few neuroscientists. It's people, so there's a pecking order in the academy. There's a, you know, there's a, there's an order of knowledge. And generally the higher you are in the pecking order, the least, the less you can say, you know, the least, the less you can break out of the box. And I think that's actually, frankly, to answer Phil's question, one of the reasons that I think I could break out of the box was I inhabit an order of knowledge that is has no authority <laughs> or, or no standing at all. I mean, you know, the, the physicists, the physicists are up here, and then maybe the chemists, or maybe the bio, the chemists and the biologists, and then the political scientists and the anthropologists and the, you know, the more dead something is, the, the, the higher you are on the chart. <laughs> and the more alive you are, the, the, the smaller. And religious studies is somewhere under the screen. We're kind of in the dirt, you know? So I, it's like the caste system, you know, the, the lower your caste, the more you can eat um, or the more kinds of things you can eat. And I, it's really like that in the academy. We just, we don't have much status in the humanities so we can but what's ironic is we don't say crazy things. The people saying the craziest things are frankly the physicists who just say completely crazy things all the time and everybody thinks it's cool. <laughs> and then when I, you know, when a humanist tries to say something equally crazy but equally plausible, they're somehow new agey or woo-woo or something. I'm like, what? <laughs> did you hear what the physicist just said? Did you, did you actually hear that? Uh, that's you know, crazy. I can say... I've heard theoretical physicists say the wildest things, and I'm wondering where did that come from, and, and is that science? No, it comes from their physics. Their physics really pushes them there. And what I, I'm telling everybody always, people think this, this resonance between quantum physics and mystical literature was invented in 1975 by... by, <laughs> Chris by yeah, well, Fritsch, Fritschhoff did a wonderful job of it, but he didn't start it. It was actually started by people like, you know, um, Heisenberg and, 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 and Bohr and, and, you know, all, these, all of these founding pioneering quantum physicists yeah. who went instantly, by the way, to India yeah. and mystical literature, saw instantly that there was this weird kind of parallel there. So I just think we should be doing that. And, and not, not take the, the SHIT that is handed out to us, you know, for, for trying to go there. So you're essentially, one of the things you're doing is, is trying to legitimize the, the study of uh, non-ordinary experience as a legitimate area of inquiry in, uh, that should be taken seriously. Now, I know people who have been pounding at that door for 40 or 50 years. You probably know Charlie Tart, as as like I do, and, and he's been fighting that battle for all those years. Is is it that making progress? Is our doors so, opening? So well, Charlie's a real you know pioneer there. Um, but I think what's different about what I'm I see I'm not trying to be a scientist, Phil. Mm, mm. And I'm what I'm trying to say is 
actually these experiences probably are not amenable to the scientific method. Uh -huh. They're, they're actually human beings. And these are stories. And you know what? The humanities and people in literature and, and history, we actually know how to handle these stories. The scientists want to look for a cause or a mechanism. And <laughs> I actually don't think there is a cause or mechanism. I, I, I think th these things are us. Um, so I think that's different. I also think the scientists today, unlike 30 or 40 years ago, are frankly a lot more humble. And they have failed spectacularly to explain consciousness with a physicalist paradigm. I mean, they have really failed, not just sort of, like completely. <laughs> <laughs> and like really honest neuroscientists know that and they will say that. They will say that this is not going well. This is not going to get us. And so it's that kind of humility and, and failure that, that leads, I think, to richer conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I always laugh, you know, I always laugh about this God in the gap um, criticism. You know, a lot of scientists 15 years ago always complained that, oh, you're just a God in the gap guy. You're just you're just filling in this gap that exists in our scientific knowledge with God, but we'll shrink that. <laughs> well, well, recently, I mean, basically what they're saying now is all of science, all of it only applies to about four or 5% of what exists. So the gap just got really, really big. <laughs> so the gap is not shrinking. It's like expanding and, and I think that's really changed the conversation. Je Jeffrey, you're the associate director of, uh, of the Center for Re Theory and Research at Echelon. When you hear research, generally you think scientific research, but obviously there's other types of research. The research that you oversee or are involved with at Echelon, uh, uh, what type is it? Well, we're not doing active research at Echelon, of course. We're not that kind of institution. What we're doing is bringing people together who are doing uh, active research in their own institutions, usually universities or, or institutes of other sort. And then we put them into conversation. We get them in a room together and they, they talk. And usually what happens is they realize they're not as strange as they thought they were. They're not as alone and they start to share ideas and you know the sparks start to fly as it were and things happen. Um, just because of those conversations. So that's really what we mean. I mean, the Center for Theory and Research is just a name that, that we gave to a group of meetings that have been going on at Esalen for, for mm. you know, since 1962, actually. Speaking of Esalen, um, <laughs> one of your earlier books is a history of Esalen. You've been yeah. deeply involved with Esalen. I think you were even CEO for a time. And... Um, when I was writing, I was not, by the way, you what? I was not, by the way. Oh, you were not. Okay, no. I'm sorry. Um, but you've been uh, you're you're a, a historian of Esalen and a participant in the programs. Um, when I was writing American Veda, uh, I realized how important Esalen is in the history of American spirituality, and I drew a lot from your book at the time. Give us, uh, you know, for people who know about Esalen, maybe have gone to workshops there, have heard about it over the course of the nearly uh, 60 years that it exists, um, and maybe if they're old enough, remember it from the 60s and 70s. 
Um, how could you tell us what how you see its place in in the history of American uh, spirituality and uh, inquiry into human nature uh, overall? Well, so it was founded in 1962. It wasn't called Eslin yet, but it essentially was. And what it was, was two young men, both trained at Stanford, Michael Murphy and Richard Price, who were coming from very different places. Richard had, was a practitioner of Buddhism and, and Taoist, kind of a Taoist person who had had an enlightenment experience within a kind of psychotic break and had been essentially imprisoned by his father in a mental hospital for a year and a half and had a very, very horrific time there. And so he was interested in founding a place of healing where people who had essentially been abused by the psychiatric system could come and heal. Mike was um, more of an intellectual. He had, I mean, they were both intellectuals, but Mike's interests were more intellectual. He wanted to bring East and West together. He was very much a reader and, and, uh, and devotee is not the right word, but deeply devoted to the writings of Sri Aurobindo and wanted to bring the sciences uh, into conversation with these mystical traditions around things like psychedelics and evolution and, and comparative theology. And uh, they founded this little, really, it was just really a, a place for people to come and talk when it started. And then the countercultural counterculture hit in about 1964 and the thing just exploded uh, and psychedelics were a big part of it. Uh, rock and roll, um, gestalt therapy, Fritz Perls. I mean, there was a lot of things that fed into it, but basically it was a bunch of older intellectuals who had had ideas for decades, like Aldous Huxley was a major influence on the place and a youth culture that really embraced these older intellectuals and, and read, by the way, read their books and embraced these ideas. And it was this intergenerational alchemy between these older intellectuals and this youth culture that really produced what we think of as Esalen. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been there now for almost 60 years, as you said. And we should add that some of those intellectuals you know, went on to do very important things. People like Maslow and uh, Alan Watts used to go there. Joseph Campbell used to go there in those days. So it was, uh, to me, a very influential place and, um, and the and most real, picturesque place. <laughs> yeah, and Phil, a real, as you know, more than as well as anyone, Eslin was a major translator of Asian yeah. ideas and practices, but it was also a filter, you know, I mean, there were only, not every Asian practice or idea made it into American culture. And Eslin was one of the filters. It wasn't the only one. I mean, this was happening all over the place. Um, but Eslin was very much a kind of stage. Um, I mean, one of the sayings was, we're a, we're a greenhouse, we're not a garden. And mm -hmm. although there's a garden there, but what the, what the, what the phrase means is, don't come here to sink your roots in and just be come here to share your ideas, which will then be transported out into the broader culture. That was the greenhouse kind of mm -hmm. idea. And so that's essentially what was its function was to bring people like Maslow and Watts and, and Leary and, and Skinner, by the way, and Tillich. And I mean, the, the names just go on and on and on. 
Uh, but those people didn't live there. They didn't produce their ideas there. Their careers were elsewhere. Esalen right. uh, was a kind of a kind of talking place, mm -hmm. and and was and is beautiful, as you say. So <laughs> people, people, people like to come there, you know. And 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 famously, uh, the site of uh, the main character's revelation at the in the last episode of Mad Men. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember Jeffrey. Uh, uh, question: uh, You you look at um, non common experiences, and one of the things you mentioned is uh, near death experiences. Uh, and in your observations, uh, uh, and what I've read about near death uh, is when somebody has that experience, they they don't lose their in, in individuality, and they don't merge into a uh, amorphous sort of absolute. But there, there, there is an individuality that's maintained, and maybe that's because people are, are experiencing an early stage of, of detaching themselves from their, uh, from their body. Uh, but what your thoughts on that? What what ultimately happens, and if a person does merge into an absolute uh, a field, a a, a unmanifest universal consciousness, how is that different than uh, being obliterated? <laughs> The simple question. Yeah, like, yeah, you ask easy questions. Um, well, of course, I don't know, Dennis. Um, but the first thing I would say is these people didn't really die. I mean, right. they might have died for a moment, but the death process was halted or reversed and they came back. So whatever they saw or whatever they experienced clearly was not ultimate because if it was, they wouldn't... <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't come back. There'd be no near-death experience to talk about. So I don't think we know, actually, whether that process goes. Um, but I think some near-death experiences do signal a kind of deeper absorption in some kind of cosmic mind. And But I also think speaking about an impersonal mind is also to talk about a super-personal mind, because, of course, it becomes everyone. Right, so in some sense, the 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 impersonal is the superpersonal as well, um, and I talk about all this. And actually, I wrote a book with a near-death experiencer, Elizabeth Crone, and I talk about that very question in the book. And you can see there what I do with it. But it's basically I basically say what I just said to you. Um, and then, of course, there's all the reincarnation memories too that I think have to be put into conversation with these near-death experiences. The near-death experience literature really developed only in the last 50 years and has had a very contentious relationship to evangelical Christianity, by the way. Mm. Um, but it sits in tension with the children who remember previous lives, you know, and, and so they're related, but they're also in theological tension. And I don't, I don't think that's ever resolved. Uh, Jeffrey, at the beginning of our uh, conversation, you mentioned your interest in the uh, effects that people having non-ordinary experiences like kundalini experiences, so forth, who go through difficulty on not only understanding it, but uh, integrating it into their lives. Uh, you mentioned Dick Price, who was one of the casualties of uh, the sort of psychiatric model of looking at these things. Uh, certain people like Stan Groff and others were talking about this in the 70s. There was the, um, yeah. what was it? Uh, spiritual a, Emergency. A spiritual Emergency Network. Where does that uh, sit now? Uh, people 
start to, you know, go to yoga class or take a psychedelic drug or whatever it is and have uh, these kind of experiences, are there places they can go? Are there reference points? What, what happens? <laughs> well, of course, there are people who deal with this in psychotherapy, but, you know, it's a rare psychotherapist who has the training to deal with this. I, right. I don't think as a culture we're, we're competent here. I think we're incompetent. Um, you know, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll just give you a really dramatic example. I, you know, I, I once invited a, um, a critical care nurse into class who worked with um, actually veterans who had been essentially blown up in Afghanistan or something, had a near-death experience, encountered the light, literally, came back and didn't want to kill anyone anymore. Mm. So what what do you do with that you know how do you talk to the the superior and and so i think that's you know that's a very extreme case but i think elizabeth crone that i wrote this book with <laughs> she came back and one of one of the first effects of the near death experience was a divorce um because she simply was not the same person anymore it mm -hmm. was it was a different woman who who mm -hmm. came back from the one who was struck by lightning and she talks about that all the time and so I think these, these are really extreme conversion experiences. And as a culture now, we are incompetent. We, people want to shove it into some particular religious box in which it almost never fits, or they want to deny it with some kind of physicalist or materialist box, which can only hurt the person further. And so we're just, we're just left there with, as a culture now with very little, I think. Um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, and uh, how much time do we have left, Phil? About eight minutes. Okay, good. Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, Jeffrey, if you had unlimited resources for research uh, available to you, financial, personnel, neuroscientists, physicists, available to you, whatever you wanted, what, where would your research go? What would you do? Well, I, I personally, I mean, I don't, I don't think I personally would have a lot to offer, but I think... No, uh, I think it's more, what area would you like to see researched if you could direct... I would, wanna, I would, I would want to bring, bring people together and, and support them financially and professionally and have them work together in a single unit or school um, on these problems. I mean, historically, if you look at these problems, there's usually some really wealthy a person who will endow a chair for a particular school, but, and someone will sit in that for a few decades, but when that person retires, the school swallows back up the money and does something very conventional with it. We need a whole school. We need a whole institute. We need, we need serious resources here, not, not one-offs. Um, and I say that because I work in such a research university that has serious resources. And it can continue an inquiry over many generations, you know, with students and, and graduate programs and journals and all sorts of things. And we just don't have those things in this area, generally speaking. Um, and I think so. This I think this is a broader cultural problem. I don't, I don't imagine myself or anyone solving it. I think it's a broader kind of cultural thing. Uh, Jeffrey, I was struck by something in your bio when uh, I was preparing for this, 
uh, you talked about something uh, you're called uh, the new comparativism in the right. in the study of religion. And for those of us who are familiar with comparative religion uh, and may have been very bored in a, in a classroom, <laughs> or, uh, what does the new comparativism entail? So, A, it's not really new. <laughs> um, it was done a lot in the early 19th century, but that was a long time ago and nobody remembers. So I just call it new to cap capture people's attention. Um, so, okay, let me tell you how it's generally done and why, and then compare that to the new. So generally when comparativism is done at all, it's essentially what I call cultural cheerleading. You, you take a religion and rah, 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 isn't it great? And then you take another religion, rah, 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 isn't it great? And you go through all these wonderful religions and then you go home, <laughs> you, you end the semester and the students are sitting there like, well, how does this relate? And how, what's, what's the same and what's different? And they're, they're, you know, often none of those questions are asked because at the, by the way, they're not particularly welcome questions these days. Um, whereas the new comparativism, what it does is it essentially gets up really, really close and intimate with extreme religious experiences, like near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, uh, precognitive dreams, things like that. And then it reads back into the historical literature where these same things are happening, but now it's impossible to read those things as just legends or things that other cultures or people made up because you freaking saw it happen. You. Your, your friend told you that it happened to her after she was struck by lightning. You can't, you can no longer read those historical texts as just purely in a purely descriptive or historical mm -hmm. way. Now they're going to force you to ask these questions about human nature. Is this in fact possible in any culture in any time? And so you sort of step out of that cultural essentialism or that pure descriptivism and you enter this much broader kind of philosophical question about who are we and what are we actually capable of and shouldn't we be taking these experiences in the past much more seriously since they're happening all around us right now. Dennis, let me follow up if I can. Um, Jeffrey, how does that uh, relate to uh, what's been called perennialism or perennial philosophy? Yeah, so this is a, a Dana Sawyer question. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I have a long answer there, which I, we probably don't have time for, which I call accidental perennialism. So, but let me try to keep it simpler. I, you know, perennialism in the way that say Houston Smith or Fritjof Schuon or somebody talked about it, argued that there was this core to the religions that they intended this somehow and that they were all intending more or less the same truth or set of truths. I actually don't believe that. Um, I think the religions are intending completely different truths. Um, everybody's walking up a different mountain. I don't think it's the same mountain we're walking up a different sides. I, I, I think it's a completely different mountain. Um, but having said that, I think human beings from any culture and time do have experiences of the sky as it were. And, and, and it doesn't really, they can't really fit it into the mountain they're on, but they try. And so <laughs> you get something like Meister Eckhart's sermons, which if, if you've read them, they're freaking bizarre. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to shove essentially a non-dual 
mystical yeah. experience into medieval Christianity. And it doesn't really work. Uh, in fact, he was his writings were condemned as he was dying, and then they were suppressed for centuries. So it doesn't really work. But you can find these experiences in almost any culture. But that does not mean that that's what the culture or religion is about or is trying to do. So again, I'm interested in what doesn't fit in, not what does. And, and I think these experiences are perennial in this sense you're talking about, Phil, but I don't think that's what the religions intend. In fact, I think the religions often prevent these. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Jeffrey, one, one final question from me. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, your, your book, uh, The Flip, Who You Really Are and Why It Matters, uh, what, what should people expect from that book? Why, why should they read it? Especially if they've been listening to you today and obviously uh, gained interest. Well, so first of all, it's my shortest book. <laughs> you, can, you can read it fairly quickly. Um, secondly, I wrote that because of actually Rice University where I work almost entirely with STEM people, you know, young people going into the sciences and, and, and medicine or something. Right. I, I started out my career talking about religious people because I find them the most interesting. But I realized very quickly teaching here that that wasn't going to convince anyone. So in the flip, I focus entirely on scientists and engineers and medical professionals. And I show that they have the same experiences and that they struggle really hard to fit those into their sciences. And their sciences work just fine after these flips, but their interpretation of the sciences changes dramatically. Interesting. Um, and so what I try to show is that um, the, having a mystical experience will fundamentally change how you interpret the effects of a science or technology, but it will not it will not exclude in any way that science or technology. In fact, it'll, it might actually help, but it, it will really, really change how you think about what it means. Because what most of us think it means is mistaken. We confuse the successes of science with the philosophical truth of materialism. Very yeah. good. Jeffrey, we have to go. Um, we'll have to get you back on the show because uh, there's so Any much more, more to talk about. But thanks for, thanks for being with us. Uh, we look forward to all your uh, ongoing work. And uh, hopefully one day uh, you'll be able to go to Esalen again in person and I'll see you there. I hope so. <laughs> I, I really hope here. so. Okay. Thank you, Thank you very Thank much. You. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you.